Beyond the, Beyond the Headlines. This is World Insight. Hello and welcome to World Insight with me, Tian Wei. Rapid breakthroughs in artificial intelligence has sparked a surge of popular AI applications such as ChatGPT. So recently, OpenAI, the ChatGPT inventor, drew worldwide attention after a leadership shakeup. On the one hand, new technologies bring more opportunities. On the other hand, many are concerned technologies are moving too fast for governance to be in place. So, how powerful is AI today? Who should take the responsibility of regulating it? And whether that is on track at all? And where will technologies bring us to? On all of these questions, I talked to Kenneth Stanley and Joe Lehman, former scientists with OpenAI. They co-authored a popular science book called Why Greatness Cannot Be Planned. Kenneth and Joe, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for joining us. What is Novelty Search? Could you tell us more about that? Why do you think it is significant today? Well, Novelty Search is a computer algorithm, and so it's a program on a computer, but it implements an idea, which I think makes it still relevant today, which is about innovation and discovery, which is basically the idea that there's a limitation to just following objectives if your goal is to innovate and discover new things. And novelty search is a kind of formalization of this insight that sometimes we need to let go of having an explicit objective in order to be able to find things that we didn't realize were possible. And it's interesting in the sense that it's not only an algorithm, but it's also kind of embodies this insight as well. Can you explain in two or three sentences about exactly what is the logic between, you know, novelty search and uh, uh, chat GPT? The link is that current language model technology, that's kind of the thing beneath uh, chat GPT, it's really good at absorbing a lot of information from humans. So it learns about language from what we express on the internet. It's trained on a lot of that. But one thing that language models still struggle to do is for themselves to innovate, to create new ideas that weren't present in the training data. And that was some of what brought Ken and I uh, to OpenAI, um, was to try to seed some of those ideas about what we might call open-endedness, the idea of, of creating algorithms that can keep on generating new stuff, um, just like humans do. Tell me more about what exactly is the uh, open-endedness that you are talking about, Kenneth? Sure. So open-endedness is actually a field within AI. Um, it's a it's a niche field where we where the practitioners of the field have been trying to figure out how to create an algorithm or a computer program that can continue to innovate, discover, and create interesting outputs unboundedly. And if you think about it, this is very different from what most people think about in conventional artificial intelligence, which is there's some problem and we want it to be solved. And if things go well, then the algorithm will get better and better at solving that problem and eventually it will solve the problem. But in an open-ended system, we don't actually have a particular problem that needs to be solved. Rather, what we want to know is what are the interesting things that can be discovered in all of the possible things that exist in space? And so it's something that innovates continually and continually discovers ideas um, that we may not have been aware were possible before. And maybe just to illustrate it a little more, if you want an example of something concrete, like an inspiration, what inspires us to make an open-ended algorithm? Uh, there's probably two big ones, and one would be civilization. You know, the rise of civilization from the earliest human beings to today, where we go from things like wheels and fire to computers and space stations, 
that huge process of like divergent creativity, that's an open-ended process. There's not like some final invention or product, which is the end of civilization. It just keeps branching out and creating new and better stuff, more complex stuff. And so we kind of want to understand how can a computer be able to do something like that? And of course, it's related to artificial intelligence because it was intelligence that was behind civilization. So in some ways, it's like the most maybe salient or obvious amazing ability that humans have is to divergently produce all of these creative mm. outputs. What do you mean by aware? Because if you look at history, uh, it is only the history that we know today. There are many things that happen in history that's not noted and therefore we have no idea about. So what we are aware of, uh, is it uh, inclusive about what human beings have been doing over history or is it only the part that we got to know so far? I think that awareness comes up maybe in the sense that we are not aware of where we're heading. Like you can't tell me a year from now what will be the inventions that will define that era. And so it's different in that sense from, again, conventional AI where we generally are aware of what we're trying to achieve. We know what the goal is. Um, but here, when you think about something like civilization, we have no idea where we're going. And yet we can be sure it's going to continue. There's going to be continued innovation. So it's true that in historically, we we, we may not know everything that happened. I mean, I, I don't know everything that happened in history. That's certainly true. But I think it's more important that what we're really unaware of is where we're going to be going forward and that we're open to all of these different opportunities that are going to be confronting us in the future. Some have been arguing the artificial intelligence that we are experiencing today might be different from all the previous quote-unquote inventions of human being. It is going to challenge fundamentally the uh, quote-unquote safety of the human society. For example, challenge human beings fundamentally. Uh, what do you think about that argument, Kenneth? Yeah, I think it's true that this is uh, fundamentally different, um, and yet it still does follow some of the themes that you just spoke about regarding major revolutions in technology that have come in the past, for example, the printing press, which create, they unleash large waves of innovation, but also create a lot of danger, um, you know, because suddenly more people are empowered to try things and to understand how to do things that before only a few people could do. And that means there's more opportunity for trouble. There's also more opportunity for innovation. And this trade-off, I think, is just a, a perennial trade-off, a trade-off that's existed forever and will exist forever between you know, innovation and danger. And societies mm. deal with that in different ways. And there's not a very easy answer, as Joel already kind of alluded, to balancing these two things. But I think what's happening with AI is it just vastly accelerates the urgency of this question of how to strike that balance, because I think it's clear that we don't want to constrain society so much that innovation stops. That's probably bad for us. But we also don't want to open it up so much that horrible consequences follow from it um, because we took risks that were too much. And AI just makes those scenarios that much more dramatic and immediate because the AI itself now can take risks on our behalf and it can also do incredible innovations on our behalf. And so to straddle that trade-off and say, well, what, to what extent do we allow things and to what extent do we constrain things is, is I think, the, the ultimate puzzle that, that needs to be addressed immediately. And yet, at the same time, it's not completely new is what's interesting about it. You know, we, we face similar problems with humans. You know, every human being has a potential 
to innovate or to cause a lot of trouble. I mean, people can cause a lot of damage. Um, and so we grapple with this just generally in our social fabric is like how to deal with this kind of trade-off as a society. And somehow we have to find a way to wrap that fabric around artificial intelligence and like have it be part of that so that people are incentivized to use it in ways that are ultimately not too dangerous, but still allow for some degree of innovation, which is going to be hopefully like really, really revolutionary innovation in a positive way, if we can get it right. How can we figure out the future direction. You talk about um, openness. You also talk about, uh, quote unquote, uh, preparedness. So what are the elements that needs to be there from openness to preparedness and the other way around? It's not just a problem of science. Like this is not just like, okay, we just need the algorithms to be safe or something. We should try, of course, to, to make the algorithms align as much as they can with what we think are positive human values. But but it goes beyond that because I think it has to do with incentive systems that we have in society in general. You know, because ultimately the people using the systems are, are part of the problem that we're facing is that the systems are very powerful. And so people can ask those systems to do things and people asking those systems to do things is also creating risk. And so I think we have to understand both algorithmically, like in terms of programming and science, like how do we get these systems to behave as best they can, but also how do we incentivize people to not use them in ways that are abusive or problematic? And that means that like there's going to be some other puzzles to solve that are like social and legalistic. I think of the incentives are a big part of this. Like we want to incentivize innovation, but if you had the opportunity to use an AI to do something that you thought was dangerous, but might help you in a big way. So for example, you, maybe you would make a lot of money, but it might be dangerous, but you're willing to take that risk. Well, we want to make it so that incentives would make it like less likely that you would do this because it's dangerous for other people. And so we don't want you to feel like there's no risk to you because if there's no risk to you, then you'll be willing to let the AI hurt people. And so somehow I think that the incentive system is also very important that people just won't try things that are too dangerous because they would ultimately have to bear the consequences of those actions. One thing I would say is that there could be a way where the incentives could align in terms of making AI more useful can often be aligned with making AI safer and more reliable, more in interpretable, more understandable. And it could be that while there there is a lot of money to be made by just simply making the, the AIs more powerful, which is, I think, a lot of the current incentives, I wonder if there's ways to shift shift those incentives, maybe as, as Ken's saying, so mm -hmm. that there's a lot of incentive to, to do more research, to make research that, that tackles the problems of, of really making the systems kind of just, even if we can understand them more, understand the impact of them, understand how they're working. Right now, these mm. large language models are not very interpretable. We don't always have a great handle on what they, they can do. If we could make it commercially important to solve those problems, then, then some of the open-ended research energy will go in that direction. And then the, the last thing I'd say is that that is definitely not a full solution because one of the mm. most difficult things about open-ended systems like, like science and research is we don't know what leads to what. And so even pouring a lot of money into trying to understand what makes these machine learning models work might not, might actually make the machine, might make them more powerful indirectly because the same innovations, like learning something new about interpretability might, again, make them more, might lead to an advance in the underlying technology. And so it's, 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 I, I find myself befuddled sometimes in these kinds of complex systems where it seems like we know we want innovation, and we know we want yeah. to somehow toe the line, but it, it's um, a bit opaque to me how to do that 
with a lot of、yeah. guarantees. The other thing is, why do we need to further innovate? Which I think is a very interesting question, because we are already here. Some argue we have good life. You know, I have a computer, I have refrigerator, and I have good、uh, peanut butter sandwich in the morning. You know, why do we need to further innovate? Why don't we just、uh, use that energy to help those who did not have our standards of living? We are talking about controlling open-ended systems, and this is why I think it's it is really important to study open-endedness, you know, because sort of at this meta level, philosophical level, what we're talking about is there's an open-ended system which is contains us as people, which is this constant innovative force, which is just seems to be unstoppable. Yet we are trying to figure out how to control it and not necessarily stop it, but to channel it in good directions. Now, one option would be to actually stop it. Um, so no more open-endedness. Now that would be, I think that yeah, it's philosophically very interesting to ask. You know, I mean, if you go back in history far enough, I think it's pretty clear that we don't want to stop innovation. You know, if you go, you know, before there was modern medicine or before there was farming or something, like I think those are innovations that are probably worth aiming for. Like we hope to get those kinds of things. But you could say at any point, like, well, maybe we have enough. Maybe we should stop now. But then you could say, but imagine a future where like some horrible things are no longer like there's no more diseases, there's no more cancers, maybe there's no more aging or things like that. Like, should we stop、um, when we have these opportunities? And but at the same time, if we if we don't stop, there could be also calamities. Like we could kill everybody. And so it seems like it's just a problem that has existed since the beginning of time because like these little these things fall out. Like most things might be helpful in some way, but things like nuclear bombs fall out. They could then wipe everybody out completely. And so like, what is the right thing to do? I'm not I'm not sure it is. Just to, I mean, I I think it's probably the reason we shouldn't stop isn't really a deep reason like like some philosophical issue about like whether whether it's you know justifiable morally to stop all. Innovation, but rather it's probably just practically impossible, you know. Like because of the fact that, like, if if I convince you personally to stop innovating, whatever that means, someone else is just going to take up the slack and do it. Then, I mean, innovation happens in all dimensions, including even like running interviews can be innovative. And so, if you stop being innovative in what you're doing, someone else will be happy to step in and be innovative. And we'd have to convince everybody in the world to stop innovating in every possible way, and that's probably not going to happen. And so, given that that can't happen, like, what can we do then with the fact that it's going to continue and it's unstoppable? I mean, the best thing we can do, I think, is try to channel it so that it ultimately doesn't hurt us and leads to something positive. Human nature. So, what you're asking, arguing is, Joe? Yeah, the purpose of innovation is to serve us. It's to make our lives better. And I think that it's sometimes it's easy to lose sight of that, which is kind of interesting. We don't innovate for innovation's sake,、um, but I think sometimes we can get carried away with that and. I guess one thing I would love is if more scientists and innovators in general kind of deeply internalize that that we're innovating to make our lives better. And some technologies and some things that we can do, you know, we can make money, and there could be these side effects, consequences, and it's it's difficult to navigate that. There's always going to be unexpected consequences. It, I think we should be a lot of discussion about at least slowing down certain avenues of technological progress if we got if we became very concerned. And while it might seem implausible to slow down the development of AI because there's so much economic force behind it,、um, ultimately it's humans. We're in charge of this. You know, we get to we get to decide as a as a species, as a society, and it's not impossible. And I'm not saying necessarily that that's the right thing to do, but I think we shouldn't pretend that we we can't we don't have autonomy that we can't ask that question that we can't actually make sure that te- technology and innovation are serving human interests. 
it means to me that you're saying there needs to be more innovation in uh, governance, in how the society is being run, and also who are the players that are running the society, what would be their uh, uh, contribution and interaction. So in order to create a cosmo, in a way, in which there can be more efforts put into the study of innovation and also the impacts of innovation. Is that what, what, what you're trying to say? Uh, yeah, also just even just educationally, as we grow up, I think, at least for myself, when I was learning about science and scientists and technology and innovation, I don't know that I appreciated kind of the, the depths of suffering that science has, has alleviated, like how how powerful that is to think of like medicines that we have, like Ken was saying, that make diseases kind of less worrisome for us. It's there's something really powerful about that. And I guess when I think about that, that makes me want to carry that mantle forward. That when I think about science innovation, that I'd want to contribute to something. Some have been asking the question whether the artificial intelligence today are going to be comparable to the human intelligence. And how do you see this comparison? And also the evolution of human beings from a very simple cell to what we are today. Is it comparable to what we are developing in artificial intelligence? Joe? Certainly the history of our development is, is, is quite different um, than the history of the development of, of AI, at least from the, the, the point of view of our origin. Evolutionarily speaking, like you said, from a single cell to humans, um, there was this unguided process that was creating us and that humans, we, we start with no knowledge and we kind of absorb knowledge from our society and from people around us, from our parents. And then we only give a little bit of that knowledge back. Um, maybe we, we have some contributions. We teach our family, our, our children. And so it's very different than, than AI, which is not coming from single cells in the same way as us, but is kind of arriving on the scene as just this big neural network currently, like a big neural network that is just absorbing everything <laughs> um, very quickly in a way that's it's very inhuman in some ways. Like it's absorbing the entire internet, um, every book, it's absorbing it. And it doesn't have like a fixed lifetime in the way that we do. It doesn't have an identity in the way that we do. And so it's very different and alien in some ways. And it makes mistakes that are very alien from the mistakes that we make. So at least from that point of view, it's it's quite different, even though it does, it can converse with us, it can kind of help us but there's, a, I think, some kind of alien gap between us and it. Current AI, it certainly has a different origin, that's for sure. And this is a very controversial topic, you know, like, is it like us or is it not? I mean, some people like to dismiss the most cutting-edge AI today, and they say things like, oh, it's just a stochastic parrot, which is meant to convey that it's not really anything like us at all. It's more like a toy. Um, and then other people will say that it's sentient, you know, it's like it actually is like a, a true, like conscious being. Um, and these are like extreme extremes of possible opinions. But the fact that you get this whole spectrum of opinions shows that I think ultimately people don't really know what it is that we're creating. Yeah. Um, and I think the big question is not what do we have now, but where is it heading? Because what at least you could say, even if you don't know what it is, is that it's moving quickly. And it's moving quickly towards something more advanced and more complex than it is today. And so what is that thing like? And is that like us in any way? And we don't know. Um, and so it's interesting, you know, you see a lot of people 
answer with what I would call certitude. Like they'll be like, it's definitely going to be like this, you know, conscious, uh, you know, uh, human like being, or, or it's definitely not for sure. Like we're not going to see that ever. I would say like, we really don't know. And that's part of the um, sort of of excitement or, or confusion of it is just like, it's not clear. We, no matter what level of expertise you have, you don't know, including the people creating the technology themselves. Um, but so it's certainly alien, like Joel says, and we can identify some of the alien aspects, but it can still share some of our capabilities. Um, and so it can be an alien with some human like faculties as well. That seems to be, I think, what it is right now. And it will move more towards being advanced in the future. But exactly what that means, we don't know. So we're facing a huge unknown with obviously profound, not mm-hmm. just civilization level, but philosophical consequences like, what does it mean to be human if this thing starts to do things and be things that we are as well? There has been uh, limited data that uh, the ChatGPT or GPTs and etc. have been studying, for example, in different languages about different cultures. I understand, for example, very limited in Chinese, and I would also argue could be limited in many other languages that are not uh, popular in the Western culture. So... Uh, what kinds of uh, possibility does that lead us to, uh, which is also a very open-ended question, I guess. I think it means that it'd be beautiful if there were many different models that were trained on many different kinds of data, or if the biggest models could be become more culturally competent, you could say. It also strangely could could offer an interesting mirror into ourselves. People have made this argument that comparing models trained in different languages could help us to understand you know, the ways that um, we are similar or different as cultures and could enable some new science about socially how and culturally how we are. So I think that's interesting. Yeah, I mean, I, it, it's clearly an opportunity to uh, train on more than just uh, the most popular languages, English and whatever other languages are popular with these models today. And it's true what Joel said, you know, we can imagine models that are based on different languages, or we could imagine like some giant universal model that's trained on every language, on huge volumes from every language, which then has some kind of cross-cultural understanding that probably none of us have, I suppose, because none of us have the ability to be exposed to all of that in one lifetime. And that might be interesting. And finally, your book have been arguing why greatness cannot be planned. I'm having that in Chinese version in my hand. It's very interesting you argue about how innovation comes and how is it different from a planned, quote unquote, innovation. And therefore, what is your message to uh, governments, to businesses, and to those innovators who are trying to seek partnership around the world? Well, I think one message is that it's important sometimes to allow people to pursue ideas just because they're interesting. Our message in the book is that greatness cannot be planned, and planning implies that we have a place that we're trying to go, so we're planning how we're going to get there. Um, But if greatness, which means the discovery of really insightful or amazing ideas, sometimes happens without planning, well, then that means that you have to be willing to sometimes actually just do things because they're interesting without knowing where you're going. And I think that governments, institutions, universities, you know, any parts of life, including individual people across the world, uh, really are nervous and anxious about doing something without knowing where it head, where it leads. 
And yet that is the way that many really important stepping stones are discovered. In other words, it might not be the final place that you land that's like really changes things, but it might be a stepping stone on that road. But the thing is that the entire fabric of innovation itself is full of stories like that. And that's like one of the things that our book tries to argue is that this is not an exceptional case where there's just some obscure scientist who had some weird idea and it led to something useful later. It's almost every case that exists. The thing, if you go back in history far enough, you'll find a stepping stone that explains how we got here, which was not created with here in mind. I think we live in a time where there's just so much pressure, so many things we feel like we have to do, goals we have to achieve, maybe in school, like all these kinds of things you have to you know, study for and, and things you have boxes you have to check off. And life just becomes very constricted and difficult. And one thing our book does is provide some scientific evidence that actually sometimes doing what's interesting, something that actually would, would enliven you, something that would be off the beaten path, something that wouldn't be about checking off a box or trying to achieve the most grand, impressive thing actually can lead to that. And I think that's that's freeing. And I think it's kind of a message um, that resonates personally with me. Like, I want more of that in my life. And also, I think our world, I think, is is um, needing that message a little bit more. That's all the time we have for today. I'm Tim Wei on behalf of the team. Thanks for being with us.